Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts to your word, that we would receive what you want to say to us, that we would grow, and that you would teach us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the book of Colossians starts out very similar to all of Paul's other letters, right? Who it is? It's Paul with Timothy. Who is Paul? He's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul's always very clear. What I'm about to say, the position of authority that I'm in is not because I attained to it. It's because God handed it to me and said, you go. And it's to the saints, it's to the faithful brethren, which incidentally means it's possible to be an unfaithful saint. So be a saint and a faithful brethren. And he says, his introduction, his benediction, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say this every time we get to a new letter of Paul's, but it always bears repeating. And that is that grace and peace always go together. Grace was the Greek greeting of the day. Peace was the Hebrew greeting of the day. And Paul puts them together because you don't have peace without grace. They're always there. They're always in that order. And if we ever find ourselves in a position in life where we are saying, wow, I just really don't have peace in, in, in anything, then go back and understand grace. Go back into, okay, what does grace mean? What does it mean that God has lavished goodness upon me that I did not deserve? And once you understand that, and the kind of a God who does those things, then all of a sudden you have a lot more peace about where you're at. So grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was writing this letter to a church um, that most people would say he hadn't met personally. He's at a church that he hasn't been to. Uh, he would have been influential in helping sort of the, in that region based on where he would have been. A lot of the leadership would have known him, but he may have not ever actually been to this church. So he's writing a letter to a church, kind of like the letter to the uh, church in Rome, to encourage this church and basically to let them know just kind of what the Lord's doing and what they should be aware of as a church. So he says, verse 3, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the, truth, in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul's connection with the church is this guy Epaphras. He's not Epaphroditus from the church in uh, the letter to the Philippians, but this guy's either the pastor or a, a, an elder in the church that Paul has some communication with. And Paul wants this church to know, right out of the gate, we give thanks to the God and Father of, uh, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith, verse 5, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Right in his introduction, Paul says, guys, I am thankful for you because God has given you, his, given you faith and because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. I am thankful that you are Christians, Paul says. I am thankful that there is something going on in your life spiritually. And he says, the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth, in the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in the world, 
and is bringing forth fruit. The Word of God is bringing forth fruit. Faith in God is bringing forth fruit. Christianity is an active truth, right? Your relationship with the Lord, when you become a Christian, you ask Jesus to take away your sins and enter you and fill you with his Holy Spirit. That is not just something that we do so that we don't go to hell. It's not something that we just do so that we go to heaven. It's something that we do that then impacts every moment of every day. It's actively doing something. It is bringing forth fruit. If you're a Christian and you are walking with the Lord, there is fruit being produced in your life. And you might say, I don't feel like there is. I don't feel like I'm getting to experience fruit. I don't feel like anything's happening. Well, you know what? The Word of God tells you that it is. And so as Christians, <coughs> kind of like if you wrestle with peace, go back to grace. If you wrestle with, is there fruit coming in my life? Go back to the Word. What's the Word of God say? Yes, there is. Sometimes your feelings will lie to you. And our responsibilities, Christians, is to say, okay, wait a second. Here's how I feel about the situation. Here's what God's Word says about the situation. If there's a, uh, if there's a breakdown between those two, my feelings are wrong. And that's totally foreign to the world because in our world, your feelings are everything. Your feelings are your God. And if you don't worship your feelings then you are not being true to yourself. And the scriptures tell us, no, you worship the Lord. You be true to the Lord. And if that involves putting your own ideas to death, then you do that. But the gospel is bringing forth fruit. And what Paul's going to do now is he's going to basically totally go off on a tangent until verse 21. So kind of hold that thought, if you will, that Paul tells the church, we give thanks since we heard of your faith because of the hope which you have, because the gospel is bringing forth fruit. And he'll get back to that thought. Verse 9. For this reason. For what reason? For everything he just said. For this reason. Because of your faith. Because we have grace and peace. Because we are giving thanks to, our, to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is bringing forth fruit. For this reason, verse 9, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. That's a long sentence. But Paul says, basically, here's what I want you to understand this thing. For this reason, because, because we've heard of your faith, because you have a hope laid up for you in heaven, and because the gospel is bringing forth fruit, because you have a future hope and a current hope, I want you to know, Paul says, that I do not cease to pray for you. This is a church where most of the people in it Paul has never met. And he says, guys, I want you to know that I'm praying for you. And he then proceeds to outline what he's praying for them. And it's really an incredible list. And I've said this before. I'll say it again. When we come in the scriptures to where someone is praying a prayer of blessing on someone else, it's a great spot to pause and write down what's there and then pray that for the people in your life, right? Because sometimes we just pray like super broad, vague prayers that really like if God didn't exist, we could still feel like our prayers got answered, right? Like, Lord, help me to feel happy. Well, if there's no God in the universe and you have a good day, you could say your prayer got answered. But sometimes there's something to be said for praying something specifically. God, I'm praying, Paul says, that these people be filled with the knowledge of your will and all wisdom 
and spiritual understanding. That's a specific prayer. You pray that for somebody, and all of a sudden, that, that person is either moving towards the Lord or away from the Lord. That, person is, that prayer is getting answered, or it's not getting answered. But if you're, if you're asking the Lord to do something in accordance with his word, then you never have to worry about, well, did I pray the right thing? You know, could I have phrased it a little better or whatever? Sometimes there's just a lot of, be- of there's a lot of richness in saying, you know what, Paul has prayed this for people. The Apostle Paul was a, I'd say a pretty smart guy, actually. I'd say he's a pretty wise guy. And so if Paul felt the need to pray this for people he had never met, how much more should we say, you know what, I'd like to pray this for people in my life. So he's praying they'd be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. He said, I'm praying that you would walk worthy, that your life, that your conduct would be worthy of the gospel. Not that you would earn your salvation, but that as you understand what God has done, you would walk in an appropriate manner. He said that you'd be fully pleasing to him, that you would, being fruitful in every good work, verse 10, that they would bear fruit in every good thing. God, I pray that just everything they do is blessed. That, there's, that there is rich, eternal fruit in that. That they would increase in the knowledge of God. So we prayed earlier that they'd be filled with the knowledge of his will, and now he's praying they'll be filled with the knowledge of him. Right, God, I want these people to know about you, and I want them to know you. And those are two separate prayers, and they're both incredibly important. That they would be strengthened with all might. God, don't let this be weak, a weak church. Give these, people an op- give these people an opportunity to grow in their faith to grow in boldness, to grow in knowing who you are and what you're capable of, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Verse 12, he says, giving thanks to the Father. Paul says, I am praying for you guys, and in every prayer, I am giving thanks to the Lord. And this is a really important, <clears throat> I don't know if you want to call it a subplot, because that feels unimportant. But when Paul talks about prayer, Paul talks about making specific requests, He's praying for all kinds of things, but he always comes back around to thanksgiving. Paul always comes around. Paul's idea of an intense prayer was one that was filled with thankfulness. And we can forget that if we're not careful, because there's so many needs that we want to pray for. There's so many things we want to see the Lord do, right? But at least to the Apostle Paul, an effective prayer involves reminding and thanking the Lord for what he's done. And I think that goes back to the idea of grace and peace. Because if I'm just praying, God, I need you to do this, I need you to do this, God, you haven't answered this prayer yet, God, please answer this prayer. If you can sort of just box yourself into this idea of, wow, God is this guy who doesn't answer my prayers. But if you go back and say, wow, Lord, I am so thankful for what you've done. Let, let's just kind of, you know, work our way through the beginning. You created the world. And then when the world rebelled against you, you created a plan to save the world. And then you sent your son to implement that plan. You've saved us. You haven't just saved us and left us. You've saved us and filled us. You're not just going to work in my life. You are working in my life. And what that does is, is it blesses the Lord because he's totally worthy of that praise, but it also sets our mind in an appropriate context. Because when we focus on the problem, we are not focusing on the Lord. When we focus on the Lord, the problem becomes much, much smaller. Right? There's a reason as a church we worship before we come to the Word. Before we say, you know, find somebody you can pray for this week. It's because we want to make sure as a group that we're setting our minds on who is God. Because people come to church and they've got burdens and they've had a rough week and they've had a hard, they got a hard life going on. And if we're just trying to meet that and focus on the problem, we are going to be overwhelmed. But if we say, you know what, we serve this God who's actually, you may not believe this, really, really big. He's bigger than your problem. And in fact, let's pause 
And let's sing about it. Let's declare the truth to the Lord, but also remind ourselves to bring our life into perspective. So he says, we're giving thanks to the Father. And then verse 13, what Paul does, is basically he takes his own advice. Paul right now is going to start, you know, listing some things that he's thankful for about the Lord. And he's going to get carried away and he's going to go for eight verses telling us about who God is. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love and whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his sins. So first thing that Paul reminds himself and this church and our church of is that he's delivered us. God has delivered us. Verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, look to the person of Jesus, right? In John uh, 14, Philip says, hey God, just, just show us the Father and we'll be good. And Jesus is having the Last Supper. Philip says, hey, you know what? I'm totally tracked with everything you said. If you could just show me the Father real fast, I will totally be like chill with everything. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand. He who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, know Jesus Christ. And you will know God. Not the God of your own imagination. Not the God of your own wishes. Not the God that you hope exists. Not my Jesus and your Jesus. No, no. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his name. It's his title. Jesus the King. Jesus the Messiah, the Savior. He's the image of the invisible God. If you look at the person and the character of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, you are looking at God. And he says he's the firstborn over all creation. Now some... Uh, some cults and some false teaching will say like, okay, look, so Jesus was the first thing created. And so he's not actually God. He's, uh, he's kind of like the first, he's like, you know, number one on the created scale. That's not what this word actually means, especially in the Greek. It's first in importance. He's the, he's the one who everything else is a very far second to, right? Jesus Christ is firstborn. Verse 16, for by him, all things were created. In case, you know, the Lord evidently knew that people would think, hey, maybe this means he's the firstborn of all creation, like the first thing created. No. Verse 16, by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So by him all things were created. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head. So he's before all things, before anything was, before, anything was, before time existed, before space existed, before energy existed, Jesus Christ existed. In him all things consist. Everything, and that is a, a truly literal everything, exist because of what Jesus Christ is doing. And even people, we like to, pastors sometimes like to go into this thing where they say, uh, they'll make a point, and that is that if you go down to the basic structure of the atom, the atom, according to really all the laws that we understand about physics, shouldn't exist. Because the atom actually has two components, and I'm going to make, I'm going to demonstrate how little I actually know about chemistry. But the atom has two components that are actually repelling each other. They're pushing each other apart. Right? Like when you take, when you're a kid and you're playing with trains, they're doing it 
in the kids' room right now. You know, you push the one train towards the other and it pushes apart. It's because they're the same kind of magnetic pole. They're repelling each other. Well, every atom in the universe is doing that. But there's something that's holding it together. Nobody knows exactly what it is. But there's, there's this thing, they'll say, that, that's holding all the atoms together. Well, according to Colossians, it's not a thing. It's a person. And the person happens to be named Jesus Christ. And he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus Christ, if you, it, the role of the church is to be under Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is over the church. And Paul, you know, what's happening, if you go back to the context of what's happening in the church in, in Colossae, where Paul's writing this letter, the church in Colossians is starting to have false teaching creep in. And this is an early form of a heresy that would eventually be called Gnosticism, that the early church had to deal with. And Gnosticism uh, comes from the Greek word gnosko, which is where we get our, is the word for knowledge. And Gnosticism is this false teaching about special knowledge. And while we know certain things, and real Christians know really cool secret things that you can know too, as long as you're willing to either pay me the right amount of money or give me the right amount of power. But basically, where Gnostic teaching went was everything spiritual is good and everything physical is bad. And so if you're doing something spiritual, that's good. If you're doing something physical, it's bad. And this translates into basically two uh, radically different ideas. One group of people said, well, if everything physical is bad, then don't do, then like limit yourself in every way physically possible. Don't eat anything except for what you absolutely need to stay alive. Don't get married. Don't ever, ex, you know, experience a single pleasure because it's all bad. Another group of people said, hey, everything physical is bad. That means that when I die, everything I've ever done physically is going to be gone. Uh, so <laughs> eat all the food I can, have all the fun I can, do everything I can. But they were both breaking down into this idea of everything physical is bad and everything spiritual is good. And where this comes into a major problem is within what is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? And the Gnostics would eventually teach that Jesus wasn't God. And that actually God never incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you had this weird like, you know, that well Jesus walked on the sand and didn't leave any footprints kind of stuff going on where you get these weird, weird ideas. And so what Paul was doing is he's writing a letter, uh, much like the letter to the Galatians, where he's going to address false teaching. But basically, in the letter to the Galatians, they're being told, you need to do all these certain things to be saved. Letter to the Colossians, the, the false teachers are kind of saying, you need to do all these things to be a really special Christian, right? And, and Jesus isn't really going to be enough to get you all the way because he's not, you know, he's his physical side wasn't all that great, and his spiritual side is good. So Jesus gets you going, and now we're just going to kind of finish this off. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to spend this whole book destroying that philosophy, but he never really addresses it. And what he does, and this is, this is really important for us to understand as Christians, Paul is writing to a church that is wrestling with false doctrine. And so what he does is he sits down and writes the book that is more focused on Jesus Christ than really any other book of the Bible. And that's a quite a claim because the whole Bible is very focused on Jesus Christ. But Paul sits down and he's going to write this church about who Jesus is. And that is how so often the church needs to deal with false teaching. When someone comes in and has, and has, a, has an idea and you're like, you know, I, maybe I can't even put my finger on it, but that's not quite right. You should go back to, okay, well, who is Jesus Christ? 
who is Jesus? What do I know to be true about Christ? And if this teaching that I'm hearing isn't lining up with that, then that's a false teaching. And if you watch, you know, cults and, and cultic groups and all these things, they always do something weird with Jesus. They always make him into something just a little bit off of who he claimed to be. And Paul's addressing that here, not by saying, okay, here's the top five things that are wrong with Gnosticism. What he says is, hey, here's who Jesus is. And here's why it's such a joy for me to get to serve Jesus Christ. So he's the head of the body, that in all things he may have the preeminence, that in all things he might be the one in charge. Basically, Paul says, everything that exists, everything, thrones, dominions, the visible things, the invisible things, the principalities, the powers, every ruler that you can see and every spiritual ruler that you can't see, they are all under him. And they are all, in the end, in the grand scheme of things, going to glorify him. All right? It is all about Jesus Christ. Verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him, that's in Christ, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. In him, in Christ, all the fullness dwells. The fullness of God is in Jesus Christ. Jesus was not 50% man and 50% God. He wasn't 60-40. He wasn't 70-70. He was 100% man and 100% God. In Jesus Christ, the fullness of God dwells. Right? And so Paul, he says basically, hey guys, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And every time I'm praying for you, I'm really thankful for what God's done. Boy, what has God done? Let's just run through the list here real fast. That's what Paul's doing, okay? He's, he's just living out what he's encouraging the church, what he's telling them he does. He says, guys, I pray for you and I give thanks. Hey, speaking of which, let's give thanks. Paul is in a state of growth as a Christian where he is easily distracted by who Jesus Christ is. And that should be something that we are all growing towards. You ought, we ought to find ourselves more and more as we walk with the Lord pausing to say, wow, thank you, Lord. You're really amazing. We ought to find ourselves saying like, no, Jesus is cool. No, 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 let me explain to you. Do you understand how awesome the Lord is? Not like, yeah, you know. Do you know the Lord? Yeah, I don't know. No, no, no. Do you know the Lord? Yes, I do. In fact, I was talking to him this morning and he was talking back to me and he was teaching me through his word. He was speaking to me. He was filling me with his Holy Spirit. He was empowering me. And then I got, and then I, you know, because I was a, I'm a sinner, I decided to do my own thing for a while, and then I repented and came back to him, and he forgave me, and now we've got fellowship all over again. We ought to be distracted by who God is, because we serve an amazing God. We serve a good God. And instead of doing what the Gnostics do, which is say, oh, no, no, we need to split this up into these pockets of everything spiritual is good, everything physical is bad, so Jesus must not have been totally physical. Jesus was some kind of weird half-God thing. You know what? Jesus Christ is the one who's rocking the show. So we ought to enjoy giving thanks for who he is, praising him for what he does, and reminding ourselves of the God we serve. In verse 21, Paul finally gets back to his point. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and are steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, 
of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, go back, if you will, in your mind, or in your Bible, to verse 3. It says, we give thanks, verse 4, since we've heard of your faith, verse 5, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Verse 21, and you, who were once alienated and enemies, yet now he is reconciled. Paul's just getting back around to his point and saying, hey, I'm super thankful that God is working in your lives, that you believe in the gospel, and that God has, now verse 21, reconciled you to present you, verse 22, holy and blameless and above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and are steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you've heard. Paul says, God has reconciled you to himself. And the word reconciled means like brought near. You were far from God, and he has brought you near to him. And he wants to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. God is doing all the work here. Right? Everything. Did you, did you see the list of who Jesus is and what he's done? Right? He's delivered us. He's the image by him. You know, he is in him, for him, by him, because of him, through him, to him, for him. The whole thing is about Jesus Christ. He's doing all the work. And Paul says he's going to present you holy and blameless and above reproach if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you've heard. Don't get moved away from this. Don't move away from the Jesus Christ that Paul describes in these verses. Jesus Christ is doing all the work. He, he has brought us near. He's reconciled us. He's doing all the work. He's presenting us. He's making us holy. Don't walk away from that. Paul says, no, no, you need to be grounded in that. Steadfast in that. So center everything around Jesus Christ. Now remember, Paul, what's he doing? He's addressing false teaching. But how's he doing it? Hey guys, stay focused on Jesus Christ. That's true for any individual. That's true for any church. That's true for any organization or denomination or movement. If Jesus Christ is the center, everything else will fall in place. And if he moves out of center at all, everything else will fall apart. It may take a really long time. It may take no time at all. But if Jesus Christ is not the center, then we will not be grounded and steadfast. That's the only way we have that in our lives, is if Jesus Christ is central. Verse 24, he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he, what he's not saying, some people read this first, and it's, the English is a little bit tricky, and it makes it sound like basically what Jesus did on the cross wasn't good enough, and so now when I have hard times, that's finishing it off. That's not what Paul's saying. But basically saying, I'm continuing in the sufferings, that Christ experienced, I'm suffering too, because of who Jesus Christ is, it's all worth it. And he says, I be, you know, for this reason, for, for the sake of knowing who Christ is, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. And he says, basically, now I'm, I'm declaring the mystery, which is that the Gentiles can know the Lord. And to them, God is, he's revealing himself to them. And this is Christ in you. He says, you guys, Christ in you, 
knowing the Lord is a mystery. It's a mystery that really the world couldn't understand for 4,000 years. And they understand it now through your lives and through your testimony because of Jesus Christ. Because of who Jesus is. And so he says, verse 28, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, kind of the same idea as earlier as chapter 1, verse 9. He's kind of referencing again the things that he's praying for them. He says, I'm pray- I want you to know that I have a conflict for you. I'm, I'm praying earnestly for you. This isn't like a passive, well, how's it going, man? Great, great, how are you? Great, great, good, good, good to see you, goodbye. He says, no, no. I'm praying that you'd be encouraged, that you would be knit together in love, that as a church, you would be closer to each other as you're closer to the Lord, that you would attain to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now remember, the Gnostics, these false teachers, say, hey, we have special knowledge. We know certain things about the Lord that you won't know unless you join our group. And Paul says, excuse me, in him in are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you want wisdom and do you want knowledge? Do you know where you find them? In the person of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know about God? Do you want to know God? Do you know how you're going to do it? Through Jesus Christ. Jesus said what? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. There is one way to wisdom. There's one way to knowledge. There's one way to knowing the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. And Paul, he's kind of quietly, you know, he's knocking false heresy out of the way by simply pointing out Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is all you need. You want special wisdom? You need to do? Keep knowing the Lord. You want special knowledge? Hey, just follow Jesus Christ. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. I'm letting you guys know this so that smart people who come along and sound really knowledgeable aren't going to lead you astray. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ. He said, I'm, I am, I'm absent, but I rejoice to see you being steadfast in Christ. It's a great thing when you're, you know, when you're separated from other believers that you know. And time goes by, and you either catch up with them, or you catch up with a mutual friend, and you say, how's, it, how's this person doing? It's a great thing when they say, he's doing great. He's holding steady. He's going strong. That's why, you know, going to like a Christian conference is one of the best and worst things you can ever do in life. Because, especially if it's people you've known for a long time, what happens? You start catching up with old friends. Right? How's it going? Man, great. Are you, you know, and you're maybe from different parts of the country. How, are, you know, you're running your race. I'm running my race. The Lord's being faithful. He's doing great things. And then you're like, you know, where's this person? And they say, eh. Uh, how's he doing? Um, 
you know? Sometimes they, just, they, don't, they don't even say anything. They just kind of give you that look and that little handshake thing, hand jiggle, and you're like, really? Right? It, really? Really? You know, it's always, it's, it's so encouraging when you can go back and, and reconnect with somebody who's been serving the Lord faithfully for years and years and years. But you don't get to do that as often as we'd like. Why? Because people don't stay steadfast. Why? Because they move Jesus Christ off center just a little bit. Right? Jesus Christ is great, but you know, he's kind of cramping my style. Or he's kind of just cutting in on my fun. Or he's cutting in on my, whatever, my pursuits. Or my good pursuits. He's cutting into my ministry. And he moves off center just a little bit. And what happens to lives and marriages and purpose and vision? It all just kind of starts going off the rails. And so Paul says, guys, I want you to know I am rejoicing to see you steadfast. I rejoice to see people be steadfast. This is, it is such an encouragement. Your life lived out faithfully over years is an encouragement to people around you. Even if you don't feel like it is, faithfulness, steadfastness, causes other Christians to rejoice. Verse 6, he says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so because you're being steadfast, right? Because you guys are doing this. So walk in him, rooted and build up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Paul says, guys, listen, I'm not there physically, but I'm rejoicing that I get to hear that you're being faithful. So because you're being faithful, keep being faithful. What does he say? So walk in him, so walk in Christ. He doesn't say, hey, because you're being faithful, now you're ready for the advanced class Christianity. Now you're ready for the special knowledge. No, no, what's because you're being faithful, keep being faithful. Keep being rooted and built up. Send your roots down deep and send the branches out. Right? You should be bearing, there should be, there's fruit that's going to bear. It ought to be bearing in depth and in maturity. Abounding in it with thanksgiving. Abound in Christ. How much Jesus can you have? When do you, when do you have too much? Paul says, just keep going. Right? And this, is, and this is what makes the book of Colossians so powerful. Is that it's a massive exhortation to just keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. Right? And so it's an incredible exhortation. It's one of the most encouraging four chapters in all of the scripture. And it's, hey, Jesus Christ is doing something. He's, he's on the throne. He's in control. He's holding everything together. He's doing all the work. So just stay focused on letting him do his thing. Right? And so it's so simple, and yet it's so profound because we can want something just a little bit more exciting, and we lose sight of that, and all of a sudden we realize, no, no, no. If that's not the center, we lost everything. So verse 8, he goes on. He says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, and according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. So it's the same idea. Paul just keeps hitting this point over and over again. Hey, you know what? You don't need special knowledge. You don't need something other than Christ to make you complete. He says, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. Do you want to know God? Then guess what you need to know? Know Jesus Christ. If you want to really know God, you know what you should do? Know Jesus Christ. If you want to know God 
more than anybody else. And you, you ought to do? Keep knowing Jesus Christ. You are complete in him, Paul says in verse 10. But beware. Be on guard. Beware, lest somebody take you captive, or lest anyone cheat you, through philosophy and empty deceit. There are people, there are people who will wear the label Christian, who want to cheat you, who want to steal something from you. And it may not be money, but what they want to do is reduce your relationship with Christ. And they'll do it by philosophy, by deception, and they will sound super smart. Sometimes you can listen to somebody who's, you know, got a massive IQ or whatever, make these arguments, and by the time they're done, you're not even sure if you exist. Like, you know, like, there's, in their efforts to prove that God doesn't exist, they wind up, like, demonstrating that you don't exist. And you're sitting there thinking, like, well, you know, like, I, I hope I do. Uh, sometimes you can just get tied up on somebody who's got a really fast-moving intellect, and it's like, well, I don't know. You know Paul says, hey, you know what? You're complete in Christ. So don't let anybody else take you captive. Don't let anybody else teach you. Somebody comes to you and they're, and they're brilliant, but they're trying to steer you away from Christ. That's misguided brilliance. It is okay. You know, so we're kind of simple people. It's okay to be simply focused on Christ. There's nothing wrong with that. If we are trying to be impressive in our doctrine or impressive in our philosophy... You're just gonna, you're gonna, what, what, what happens? You're moving off center. Why? Because we're just elevating, oh, I hope I look good. I hope I'm smart enough. And, and you're not. I'm not. And Jesus Christ is. And so Paul just keeps going, hey, you're doing great. Keep walking in Christ. Keep growing. Don't let anybody else come along and tell you that we're, that, that is not enough. What you need to be full, to be complete, to be abundant, to bear fruit in Christianity, to bear fruit in this life, what you need to do is just to keep walking in Christ. Keep following Christ. Verse 11, he says, In him you were also circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So if you will, kind of go back in your mind, as Paul's highlighting these different points of who Jesus is. And that first chunk that we covered, he's talking about, you know, here's all that Jesus has done in terms of just creating the world, being over the world, being the ruler and authority. And then he's talking about, hey, Jesus is also the one who's steering the church. He's growing you. You just need to keep walking in him. But now he's making a point about salvation. And, okay, what does it mean that I'm saved by Jesus Christ? He says, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. The Gnostics, you know, there was a push, there was kind of a blend going on of Gnosticism and, you know, there's always the temptation to go back into legalism and there were some Jewish legalists in the church at the time and they're pushing for, hey, well, you need to get circumcised to really be a Christian. Paul says, can I just make a point here? And I'm going to try and make the same point Paul made without going too far off the edge. But Paul loved using circumcision metaphors. And it's just awkward sometimes. But hey, what the heck? Paul's just making a point. Look, the physical act of circumcision 
is removing a small piece of skin from the body. A small physical piece of skin from the body. The circumcision of salvation is not getting a minor operation. It's being skinned alive, right? Jesus Christ didn't come along and say, oh, let's, you know, there's a little extra piece of your flesh hanging on. Let's just, you know, cut it off. No, no. He said, you know what? Let's just start over and just like peel off the whole thing and I'm going to just put my righteousness on you. Paul's making a point. If you think that physical circumcision is going to somehow supersede that, it's not. It is not. It is a symbol, sure. God gave it to the Israelites as a symbol of you should be intentional about removing the sinful desires from your life. But Jesus Christ, Paul says, did the whole thing. He did the whole work. You think a physical act is going to replace a spiritual act? And you're nuts. He says, we were buried with him in baptism, and we've been raised with him through faith in the working of God. Now, baptism is a spiritual demonstration that we do carry over. We are told to be baptized as Christians. It's not going to save you, but it is a command from Scripture to be baptized. You don't get baptized to get saved any more than you'll do anything else in Scriptures to get saved. You do it because you're saved. Baptism is a symbol that says, hey, you know what? Jesus Christ was buried in the grave for three days, and he came out demonstrating that he had power over death. I want to be, in a sense, buried in the water and come out as a symbol that I've been raised to a new life in the same way that Jesus Christ was raised back to life. Why? Because he's the firstborn to rise from the dead. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the one who has authority. He says in verse 13, And you, being dead, and your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. There's no, if Jesus Christ has forgiven you all your trespasses, there is no physical thing you can do to make all go from all to more all. Right? It's, it's either all or it's less. And if it's not all, then Christ is now weak. He's now a liar. He's now deceived us. If, if Jesus said, this is what you need to do for salvation, and that is just believe me, and he wasn't telling the truth, and there's something else we have to do, then Christianity is a waste of life. But if he's telling the truth, if he is who he claims to be, and the fullness of God dwells in him, then he has done it all. And there is nothing you can do for salvation. Paul says he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. There was a list, there was a ledger for each one of us of all the reasons, all the sins we committed that separate us from God, that made us deserve separation. And God has wiped them out. He is taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You understand, sometimes we can forget what all was on that cross, right? Jesus' physical body was on the cross. The Romans nailed it there. The sign was over Jesus' head. Pilate ordered it nailed there. And your sins and my sins were there too. God the Father nailed them there. Jesus Christ did not just die physically. He took on the weight of every sin that any person would ever commit in all of eternity and he bore it in that moment. And in a concentrated moment of judgment, Christ bore our sins. And so that whole list of every reason why you deserve to not be with God, and, and they're not made-up reasons. We all have a very tight, accurate list of reasons we don't deserve to be with God. It's all been 
nailed to the cross. And when Jesus rose from the grave, that list did not come with him. It stayed. Right? That list did not rise. The list is gone. And he says he disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Do you understand the demonic forces thought they had won? They thought we just did it. We pulled it off. Because had they understood, had Satan understood what was at stake when Jesus died, he would have tried to find a way to prevent it. But in his own pride and his arrogance, he deceived himself. He thought, if I can just kill Christ, then I will win. And, for, and Jesus Christ bears all of our sins on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he says, it's finished. And he dies. And Satan's got to think, what exactly does it is finished mean? For three days. Like, what, you know, what's, what's our intel on that? People don't say that very often right before they die. So what is, so, you know, um, well, we'll spend three days thinking about it. And Jesus triumphs over them. He makes a public spectacle of them. And you understand this? In, this. in our world, it's hard to picture this because when people do this, it's called bad sportsmanship. But when you're God, it's a little bit different. Jesus can laugh at the devil for saying, you, in your arrogance, thought you had won. You didn't realize that what you did was demonstrate that I won. You thought you were finishing off the war and all you did was kill yourself. All you did was prove that you aren't going to win it. And so he made a public spectacle of them. So verse 16, so because of all these things, because you've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, because you've been buried with him in baptism and raised to life, because all the trespasses that you committed against God have been wiped out and nailed to the cross, so let no one judge you in food or drink. We're going to be done in about 10 minutes, I think, so don't sweat. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Paul says, so if all these things are true, about who Jesus is, about his role in the church, about what he's done for us in salvation, don't let somebody come in and tell you that they have special knowledge and that you have to attain it by your food or your drink or your festivals or your Sabbaths. He says, these are a shadow of things to come. There is some significance in the Sabbath and in certain dietary restrictions that the Lord lays out in the Old Testament. But those have nothing to do with your salvation. And, and, and understand, they're a shadow. And if you decide, oh, no, I'm going to really get into this. I'm going to really, you know, tap into the, the Jewish origins of Christianity and all this. And I'm going to get my, you know, whatever. If you want to get yourself a shofar, God bless you. And I'm going to celebrate all the feasts and we're going to, you know, we're going to go to church on Saturdays because that's more spiritual and, and all these things. We're going to roll our H's and our R's because that's really spiritual, right? Paul says these are shadows of things to come. These are a shadow and a picture of a relationship. If you have a family member, you say a spouse, you go on a work trip, you come back home and your wife runs to meet you and you run to meet her shadow, there's a problem going on, right? Nobody in their right mind wants to kiss their wife's shadow. That's dumb. That's really dumb, right? You have a wife there 
Or you have a husband there. You have a child there. Why would you, why would you show affection to the shadow when you have the opportunity to show it to the real person? Paul says, if you're going down all this road of, of Sabbaths and new moons and festivals, you're making out with the shadow. Okay? He says, you're not holding fast to the head. Who's the head? Christ. Right? Chapter 1, verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. So hold fast to Christ. If Christ is the head of the church, the head, your brain, from your brain, the whole body is nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments. And in the same way, through Christ, the whole church is knit together. It's built up. If Christ is the head, everything else will fall into place. If, he is, if we try to make something else the head, you have a really awkward-looking object. So don't go for the shadow. Go for Christ. Don't let anybody deceive you. Don't let anybody tell you this is how you get special knowledge. Verse 20, therefore, Paul's on a roll. If you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. Paul says, why would you put yourself under these things? Christ died so that we could be free. He didn't die so that we could then try to earn our way to heaven by doing good things. He died so that we could be free. Verse 23, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. This is the irony that people always say, hey, if you want to be spiritual, you need to do these things. Paul says these things... They have an appearance of wisdom. Oh, they have an appearance. They are going to look good on you. But they are going to be, how much? No value against indulging the flesh. If you decide, hey, I'm going to do these things to get the special knowledge, to know Christ, so that, you know, Christ will have to show me more things. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to follow the law so that I'll be saved or so that God will like me more and so that I won't sin more. I'm, gonna, you know, I'm just going to be awesome because I'm an awesome person anyways. And Jesus Christ basically comes to his role in life is basically just to make me look awesomer. If you go down that thought path, you have, there is no value against the indulgence of the flesh. All those things, all those rules, all those resolves and resolutions, they are worthless when it comes to resisting the flesh. Now, the irony is that in other letters, Paul encourages a semblance of that, but he's very clear, we're never doing something to get this. I'm not, it's not, hey, I'm going to not do this so that I won't sin. It's, hey, because Christ has done this, I don't want to sin. So I don't want to do something that's going to get between me and Christ. So yeah, I am willing to put up a filter in my life in this dimension, but not so that I won't sin, but because Christ has come and set me free from sin. I'm, I'm, I'm walking a path of, I just don't want to go down that road. And, and I don't want to be tempted to go down that road. Sin happens when the opportunity to sin and the desire to sin come together. So if you have a desire that you're always wrestling with, then, yeah, cut out the opportunity and you won't sin. If there's an opportunity that you don't really desire, but it's always there and you've kind of started to notice that it looks like a lot of fun, well, remove the opportunity or, or remove the desire. But don't ever think that, hey, if I do something, it will make me holy. If I do something, it'll make God like me more. No, no, no. If you do something, if you're going to do anything, stay focused on Christ. And what that's going to do is it's going to just bring you 
in line. Okay, because think about like this. If you've got a, a husband and a wife, and it's a fitting metaphor because marriage is the metaphor God uses for the church. If there's a, a creepy guy who's threatening your wife, your wife comes home and says, hey, there's this creepy guy who's stalking me. There's a couple of responses that the husband could say, right? You can look out the window. He could say, babe, I'll be honest. You've been putting weight on lately anyways. I think you could take him. Probably wouldn't recommend it, but you could. Or what you could say, it's fun being single sometimes. I'm not going to lie. Or what you could say is, stay behind me, right? I'll take care of this. You stay back. What you, oh, and what you should certainly not say is, I'm right behind you, babe, right? No, no, no. If there's a creeper, your job is to say, you stay behind me, right? You keep, if your husband is the wall between a woman and a predator, we're okay. If the woman has to go out and beat the predator up on her own, we've got serious issues at hand, right? And so what Paul is saying is don't have this idea of like, well, I just got to, you know, sometimes we get in this idea of, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resist the flesh. And, and all you're doing is basically just trying to go around the husband. Christ is the husband. So what do you do? Christ says, hey, stay behind me. I'll take care of it. You stay behind Christ. You stay behind Christ, and guess what? All of a sudden, that creeper's toast, right? You stay behind Christ, that sin, that temptation, that desire. If you're behind Christ, and he's the center, and he's the head, then this is no longer about whether or not I'm big enough or strong enough spiritually to beat this person up. It's about, hey, you know, in the marriage metaphor, hey, is my husband big enough? That's a different question. And Christ is big enough because Paul spent all of chapter one telling us, hey, he's a big God. He's the creator. He's the one who has made everything. He sustains everything. He's established things. He's established the church. So don't ever fall in this idea. Paul's warning this church. He's warning us as individuals and us as a church. Don't ever start to think, hey, if I can just do these things, then I won't give into the flesh. No, no. If you're going to do anything, you get in line behind Christ. Say, you know what? He's the head. Wherever he goes, that's where I want to go. Wherever, whatever he does, that's what I want to do. And you know what that does? That has value against indulging the flesh. If your goal is to be more righteous, that is an awesome goal. But if your solution is then to go around Christ and do things on your own, it's no value. It's worthless. It's a waste. So line yourself up, line ourselves up, orient Christ as the head of everything. And everything else falls into place. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came to earth, that he lived and died and rose again. We thank you that we have the promise of life eternal and the promise that you're working in our hearts right now. I pray that you would just help us, like Paul prayed for the church uh, for the Colossian church, that we would know more about you, that we would know you more, that you would be the focus of our lives, that nothing else would take that place. It's a, it's a throne that belongs to you, Lord. We pray that we would never set anything else on it. So have your way with us. Go before us. Guide us and lead us. We want to be following along with Christ, whatever he does, wherever he goes. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.